Again, for those uh, who would like to go to Israel with us, if you weren't here last week, um, you can just get in touch with me to get a sheet here for November of 2023. And if people listening want to uh, join us, they can, as well as hear other messages here on patreon.com forward slash creation instruction. So with that said, we are going to talk tonight about betrothal here a little bit before we get to the first verse. And kind of looking historically at what would happen at a wedding in Galilee at the time of Christ. And the reason we're doing this is because there is a big picture of this in the book of Revelation. And what we're seeing is much of that process taking place, I think. Now, I am not going to pretend that I have all the details correct or understand it fully. But no question that a Jew in the time of Jesus' day, his verbiage, they, were, they had a wedding in mind. They understood he was talking about a union there, a husband and a wife. It was usually at least a year long from the time of betrothal to the actual wedding, a minimum of a year, and it could go longer than that. But it was one of the most important events that would take place in town. People would hear about it, they knew about it, as soon as they heard, uh, oftentimes it would take place in a city gate and the town would run to that city gate if they had gates or anywhere where the business was being taken. So that word of the betrothal would just spread and because there needed to be witnesses to it, then, you know, the people would run there to be a witness. It was a celebration. It was something that they really looked forward to. Uh, you know, back then, they didn't have as many parties as we do today. It seems like we have a party for everything today. My kid just got his first tooth. We're going to have a celebration, whatever. Okay, so these were big events for them back then. Now, typically what would happen is that there was going to be a written proposal, something like a contract or a covenant that was written out. And then they would basically get the parents together. Now, really just the father. The father of the bride and the father of the groom would come together and kind of have some things that were worked out first. And that covenant that was then written out would be ratified with those uh, witnesses then. Now, what would happen is the bride-to-be would be confronted by the bridegroom-to-be, and it was basically an asking, will you marry me? But it was much deeper than that. It was... A covenant and so when we talk about betrothal it's not like hey you want to go steady this is in their eyes they were legally binding because a covenant had been made so it was much deeper than our engagements today uh, anyway if the the bride-to-be would say yes then it would be publicly read a public proclamation that this union was to take place. Gifts would then be exchanged. The bride would be given, the future bride, I should say, would be given extravagant gifts as well. 
Now, there was also something that was a bride price that was then paid to the father of the bride. And that bride price was kind of an insurance type thing. And the father was supposed to keep that so that if anything happened down the road, let's say that your daughter's husband died, that she had something to also take care of her, in a sense. Um, But where I think it really shines is this. To ratify this covenant, the bride was given by the bridegroom a cup of wine. And that was like, will you marry me? If she took that cup and would accept it, that was the I do, I will marry you. And so you can see already kind of a picture of communion here. She had a choice to accept or to reject that offer. How much of a choice did she have on that? Like, like, did she really have a choice? She really had a choice, yep. This was not necessarily a forced marriage. Was it an arranged marriage at times? Yes, but not a forced marriage usually. So um, her willing acceptance made it final, though. And that's one reason why I say when we take communion, this is a serious thing because when you take that, that's an acceptance. You don't go back on your word. This is something that's saying, yes, I am committed. And to break that was serious. It was as serious as divorce. So we'll get more into that here in a little bit. But um, after she would take it, the groom would then take it and drink it. And he would say publicly something like this, you are now consecrated to me by the laws of Moses and I will not drink of this cup again until I drink it anew with you in my father's house. Sound familiar? The very words that Jesus says at Passover, he said, I will not drink of this cup again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And so these are things that a Jewish household was fully aware of. They understood these things And so when Jesus is talking about these things that we read in Scripture, it might kind of go over our heads, but when this was a cultural thing they were so familiar with, they didn't miss it. And we oftentimes do. So if I would just give you a kind of an outline of what would happen here, it's this. The arrangement between both fathers, a bride price that is paid. Jesus paid that price with his blood. He purchased us with his blood. Then the covenant was sealed with blood or the cup being shared, a sharing of that same cup. Then the bride went to prepare herself. Once she knew that she was engaged, she had a responsibility. It wasn't, okay, now I'm going to go live my life. She had a responsibility to be prepared for that groom. And others were watching her as well to watch out for her purity. Then the bride, as I said, was given gifts. Well, when you become a child of God and you take that communion cup, you are also given a gift in a sense. That's why I say this isn't for the unbeliever. This is only for believers. And part of that was this, is that you are given the gift of the Holy Spirit, a deposit, guaranteeing, an insurance 
type thing, you might say. I don't want to necessarily equate the, the Holy Spirit with insurance, but in a sense, it's a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. And then, after that, the bridegroom was to go and prepare a place back to his father's house where he would build on usually to the father's house to make a, uh, a dwelling there for the wife. Okay? Then, there was what was called the fetching of the bride. And the fetching of the bride was simply this, that at a time unknown to anybody but the father, the father would come and say to the, the, the groom, you may now go get your bride. And she, he would go at a time unknown to go get her. And after that, you'd have a private ceremony. And then it became a public ceremony where the wedding would actually take place afterwards. And that was only for believers, not non-believers. Just like you read in the parable that there were many invited to the wedding, and then there were those outside of the wedding. And then after that, you would go back home to live with your bride and bridegroom, I should say. So, with that said, that just kind of gives you a basic outline. We are to be presented, just as that purity was to be uh, preserved and people to, were to watch out for the bride to make sure that her purity was preserved. The same thing is with us. This is what it says here in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2. For I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy, for I espoused you to one husband that I might present you as a pure virgin to Christ. It also says in Ephesians 5, 26, that he might sanctify it, having washed it by the washing of water with the word, that he might present the church to himself, a glorious church, not having a spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. We are to be presented as pure virgins to Christ. Now, we live in a world today that says obedience doesn't matter. It does. It matters fully. And if you think it doesn't, you have been deceived. Now, we often, well, that, I'm pure, I'm spotless because Jesus has made me spotless. There's some truth to that, absolutely. However, if you're relying on purely his righteousness without you playing a part, it doesn't work that way. And I'm going to give you examples of that. I, we hear it's, all, it's nothing, it's his righteousness, his righteousness. Yes, that's true, but it's also false. And you're going, to have, you're going to see an example of that tonight. Because you're going to see that in the Old Testament, there were people that were counting on God's righteousness and actually didn't care to do anything on their own. And God says that your prayers are a stench to me. They relied on God. But their prayers were a stench because their heart was not for God. God says where your heart is, you know, that's where your treasure is, right? Where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. So if you have a heart for sin and, and doing things that are ungodly, let me tell you that your prayers may be a stench to him. If you ignore the law of God because, hey, I'm free in Christ, then you're using your license the, uh, your freedom is a license to sin, and God says that's an abomination to him. Go ahead and go to church. 
I don't care, it's an abomination to me. You'll see more as we go on. But the point that I want you to see is that our purity is supposed to be watched out for, not just by you, but by one another. We're to hold one another accountable. And we need that. Now, the other thing is, is we're going to talk about, we've, we've talked about the rapture. What is this rapture? Like I said, everybody believes in a rapture. Even those that don't believe in the rapture believe in a rapture. They just don't use that terminology. All the rapture is is being caught up with the Lord. The question is, is that possibly the fetching of the bride? When does that take place? Well, we will look at that here in a moment. Then you have to ask yourself, well, how about the, the private ceremony? In the public ceremony? What, what would that be? Well, we're going to see these things in the book of Revelation. I think we see all of them in the book of Revelation. So we'll come back and look at it. But I just want to get that picture in your mind so that you can think about it. Let me just show you a couple of verses here. Matthew 26, 29 says, But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. We already kind of mentioned that, but that's exactly. Those disciples, when he said that, I think had a picture of a wedding in mind because it was something they were familiar with. 1 Corinthians 11.25, Jesus said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Covenant, we throw that word around, but a covenant was a serious thing. This is a contract. This is, this is more than, oh, hey, yeah, this is my blood, and you, know, you just remember me. Much more serious. When he says this is the covenant, that means that you should take communion seriously because you are signing in a contract you ever gone and bought a house or a car and you're signing your, your life away? I mean, in a sense, that's what it is. You know, usually you're all excited about it, and then the next day you're like, what did I do? <laughs> you know? So, <clears throat> but that's how serious this is. Now, even to this day in an Arab home, it is very culturally uh, common for you to drink out of the same cup. It is a welcoming thing when you go into their home to, to drink out of the same cup as uh, a sign of uh, union, togetherness. So, anyway, this cup of the new covenant, this basically seals the deal in a wedding. And that's why in Corinthians it says so plainly that if you eat and drink in an unworthy manner with communion, you eat and drink to your own damnation. What does that mean? Well, it's the same thing. If you, in a wedding, if this woman took and said, okay, I'll, sure, I'll drink it. And then, you know, two hours later, she says, I don't want to do this. I was just joking. That woman would be in some big trouble. She would be an outcast. She would, her reputation would be ruined. I mean, this was a serious thing. Likewise, God says, when we take communion, don't do this lightheartedly. Because if we do it in an unworthy manner, it is serious enough. For your own damnation because you have just made a covenant a contract that you are bound to with the creator of the universe that's how heavy and serious this is and that's why i think sometimes when kids take communion we need to be careful because 
This isn't just, do they understand that? Do they truly understand what they're doing? Or is this just, well, yeah, okay, I'm, I'm training them to just do a ritual. I think there should be some understanding of a commitment here when, when this is taking place. Well, John 14, verse 3 says, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may also be. Again, don't think that this went over the heads of the Jewish community at this time. They understood what was going on. You take that covenant, now the groom, he's going to prepare a place to add on to his father's house. If it were not so, I would have told you, he said. Clearly, they're understanding a wedding picture here, biblically. Think about the wedding connections that are made. Jesus' very first miracle that he does is where? At Cana, in a wedding. He turns water into wine. The terms cup and covenant are, are common at weddings. So, once that betrothal was done, as I said, the people are going to go back to their places. You know, they went, they saw the covenant, they were witnesses to it. Now they go back and they party a bit in the streets a little bit. They're having a great, it's a celebration, okay? But the work now begins for the groom and the bride-to-be. The groom-to-be leaves and he will live apart from the bride a minimum of a year and, as I said, prepares a place, acquires materials, and possessions to add on to the father's house. I like the fact that he acquires possessions and materials. Where do you think he gets those? What's that? Menards? <laughs> no, they're an evil company, so no, no, just kidding. Well, I've kind of referenced this song a number of times, and I'm not saying it's completely theologically accurate, but there is some truth to this. What you do, how you lead your life, what you're deciding to do in your day-to-day -day life, those are the materials that he's building this house with. Because it says in Revelation, we'll see this later, that you will be rewarded according to your works. You're not saved by your works, but you will be rewarded for them. There are material Materials that are needed. And again, I, I know the theology. I think you know the theology, but I just have to say it. We can do nothing apart from Christ. These works aren't your own works by yourself, but it, it's, a, it's a heart after the Lord. He empowers you to do those works, so ultimately it's His glory, but you still have to do it. And you will be rewarded for it. So, when Jesus said these things just like this, again, like I said, they understood this was a wedding. Now, we have talked in recent weeks here in regards to the rapture possibly being taken to Zion. That's what scripture seems to say, way more than this idea that we have, you know, preached in the churches today. 
Over and over and over and over again in the Bible, we see a gathering to Jerusalem, a gathering a, a, you know, uh, from the four corners all to Mount Zion, to Jerusalem. And then we see the Bible says that he becomes a hoopah, a protection over his bride. So perhaps that that rapture isn't, boom, taking us to heaven right away, because that's not what the picture of the Bible gives us, is, all right, we're moving along, and boom, one day, boom, and now we're in heaven, and it's all over. There are a lot of events that go here in the book of Revelation, a lot of things that take place beyond that. This whole period of being there in Mount, at Mount Zion, Mount Zion splitting in two, the Armageddon battle, then a second Armageddon battle after this Revelation 20 period. I mean, there's a lot of stuff there. We have oversimplified the idea. You live your life and then you die, or maybe you live your life and Jesus comes back and now you're in heaven and it's all over. So much more than that, biblically. So, this idea of being brought to the hoopah before you live with the groom might fit into this wedding. Not that you're just carried away to his house immediately, but that you have to go to a ceremony first. There is a private ceremony where it's just a, f a few of you, and then there is a public celebration. Now we see in Revelation 19, there is a wedding banquet of the Lamb. Seems to be a public ceremony where everybody's invited. But that's Revelation 19. We're only in chapter 9. What's going on on this hoopah? Well, I find it interesting that when you get married in a Jewish place today, oftentimes what do they put you under? A hoopah. Still to this day. They have a, a wedding hoopah. I don't know. I might be wrong on this. I'm just kind of throwing out some ideas of patterns that are here. But could it be that that rapture as scripture seems to indicate, takes you to Mount Zion. And this is the private ceremony where he is that hoopah. But we haven't been taken off to heaven yet. We don't get our home yet. The home that's been added on to the Father's house. Later on in chapters 21 and 22, we see a new Jerusalem. The new heaven and the new earth coming down out of heaven is that new Jerusalem. Is that the house? So that first, boom, the personal uh, private ceremony, then the New Jerusalem becomes, hey, now you get to go into the home. Okay? I don't know. Just some thoughts here. Mark 13, 32. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Again, any Jew would go, oh, I get that, because that's the way it was. The groom did not even know when he was allowed to go get his bride. The father had to look at everything and say, okay, now it's time. It's ready. The home is ready. You can now go get them. Isn't that interesting? Why did God not allow the Amorites to be destroyed in the Old Testament right away? He says, their sin has not yet reached its full measure. He said, don't think that it's on account of your righteousness that you are entering this land, but it's on account of the 
sins of these nations that I'm allowing you to go in and take. A judgment day for them is coming because their sins have finally piled up high enough. Well, it's the same here. But remember, in the last couple of weeks, I keep telling you guys that what you do on this earth right now matters because you are preparing for your groom to come by living a life for him or a life for yourself. And if you're just living a life for yourself, maybe that's God's patience in saying they're not ready yet. Yeah, you can't go get her yet. You can't get to church yet because they're not ready yet. They need to be purified. They need to be spotless. Yes, Jesus died on the cross, but they don't get this yet. They don't understand what you have done for them yet. I don't know. It's just an interesting parallel. The Father has to give them permission. You know, we look at this parable of the wedding here in Matthew chapter 25. It says, then the kingdom of heaven, okay, that's what we're talking about, right? Heaven shall be likened to ten virgins, that's us, who took their lamp, lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now, five of them were wise, five were foolish. Which are you? How are you living your life? Like a wise virgin or a foolish one? Oh, I got all these plans. I'm going to live life but I'm not going to be living my day-to-day -day life getting ready for my bridegroom to come when I don't know when he's coming, being prepared every single day. Or have you fallen asleep and decided, you know what? Man, I got a lot of goals in life. I want to get this accomplished and that accomplished. And living foolishly for yourself because the cares and the busyness of this world have overtaken and caused you to fall asleep. That all you think about is how to fill your day and time rather than how do I glorify God today. Those who were foolish took their lamps, took no oil with them. Oil is often a picture of the Holy Spirit. The wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps, but while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. And as you know the story, they said, I don't have enough. At midnight, it's interesting, Jesus is going to come like a thief in the night. Midnight. Um, it, it seems that there are so many pictures of the groom coming at night. Not necessarily that it's going to be night when the Lord returns, because wherever it is here, there's going to be daylight on another planet, or another side of the planet, right? The point of this is, it's the last hour. It's late. It's when people are tired, and they've, they've gotten lazy. That's the point of it. Are you tired? Are you weary? Have you fallen asleep a little bit? Do we need to wake you up to be ready, to have oil in your lamps, to be living in excited preparation for the Lord's return every single day? All ten started 
but only five finished. Paul says that he had run the race. Hebrews warns us to not to grow weary. I know that there are times in my life where I certainly have grown weary. And I've gotten my mind off track and have gotten caught up in the captivity of activity, our day-to-day grind, day-to-day stresses sometimes. Uh, You know, all these things. And we need to be brought back. All I know is if marriage is a picture of our heavenly relationship with God, then that means even those of you who are married, do you see your marriage that way? I mean, how does your marriage on earth compare to what God is saying here? What is it about for you, this marriage? Clearly, over and over, he he says, this is a picture of it. So husbands, are, are you preparing a place for your wife? Ephesians says that we are to wash our wives with water, pure water, to present her to be holy and blameless. Eve ate of that fruit, and as I've talked about in earlier lessons, who was blamed? Not Eve. Adam was blamed because Eve ate. Because he bears the responsibility. You're supposed to be preparing a place for your spouse. Are you having devotions with your wife? Are you leading her closer and closer to God? Or are you just kind of filling time? Keeping her busy with the day-to-day grind? How are you leading And preparing a place for her. And then wives. Do you look up to your husbands. Even though they may not always deserve the respect. They haven't earned it. I'm sure we'd never have. But do you look to them. As we are to look to Christ. And be excited and expectant. And and just can't wait. That. You're ready to serve happily. Or is it maybe more of a picture of, well, I'll do it because I have to. Put that in perspective of what we've talked about over the number of years here now regarding to the law of God, a have to versus a heart to. We keep the Sabbath because you have to. God could care less. You keep a Sabbath because you want to. Not only are you blessed, but that blesses him. So look at your marriage. Look at your role as a husband or a wife in relation to God here. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ will rise first. Notice he's coming with a shout and a trumpet call. I think we know that. But here's what happened in the wedding. The son, the groom-to-be, would take a shofar and he announced to the village that he was going to get his bride by blowing a trumpet. When people heard that trumpet, they knew what was going on because they'd been expectantly waiting. And when that happens, 
they all come running out to watch. Only those, though, who are ready and expectantly watching are the ones that follow through the streets. Well, the bride comes out to meet him out in the streets, and she would be dressed in white. She always had her white clothes ready. Well, we see in Revelation 19 as well, right around that same time of the wedding banquet of the Lamb, that you are given white linen to wear. White linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints, Scripture says. Your works matter. Well, a bunch of people would come along that bride, lift her up in the air. It was called the uh, flying the bride to the house. Kind of like our birthday celebrations here. And that is a, a perfect picture of the rapture being taken to, but again, they don't take her to the house that had been prepared for her. They're taking her to what is going to be the private ceremony, then a public ceremony, and then later the house. But imagine the disappointment if the bride's not ready. Revelation 19.7 here, Let us be glad and rejoice. Give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. His wife has made herself ready. Okay? It doesn't say God made her ready. While there's truth to that, don't forget there's two sides to this coin. God will not make you ready through osmosis. That is a choice you have. To follow and be ready, but if you just think, okay, yeah, I believe in Jesus and now I'm going to be ready because I said that prayer, no, you're going to be one of those five virgins that didn't have oil in their lamps. Isaiah 26, 20 says this, Come, my people, enter your chambers, shut the doors behind you, hide yourself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation is past. The one in my head says, Hide yourselves until the wrath of God has passed by. These are all verses that seem to be talking about end. Now, we're going to start punching this into Revelation 9. Because the door is shut. This is what happened when the bride was taken in the flying away of the bride. She was taken to this private ceremony where the door was shut. Now, here it's saying, come enter your chambers, shut the doors, hide yourself until there's this wrath of God that goes by. Kind of like that parable that we see of the wedding banquet, where it says, go invite people. Oh, a lot of people couldn't come because they just got married. Which, by the way, that means you should be following the Lord, not trying to just appease your wife and compromising on the word of God. Right? I can be guilty of that. We should be following the Lord not trying to please our children and allowing them to get away with things that, you know, are ungodly. But my point is, is these people couldn't come, so he says, invite everybody else and the doors are shut. 
And the ungodly are outside, but it says where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. So while the doors are shut in that parable of the wedding banquet, we see the godly people come into the wedding to celebrate, but the ungodly are kept out. But what's happening to them? There's wrath going on where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Here, Isaiah 26 seems to be saying the same. Come on in. Shut the doors. Hide yourselves for a bit. Meanwhile, while you guys are having fun, there's hell going on out here. There's weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's the wrath of God going on out there. Is that what we have been talking about in the past few weeks? God takes you, the rapture, to Mount Zion. He's a hoopah. Hey, have a great time. Well, meanwhile, there's a lot of yuck going on outside. I don't know. But it's a nice picture of the wedding banquet of what's taking place. Now, let's get into this one verse. I gave you all of that background because this is fitting what we have been studying in the book of Revelation so perfectly. Chapter 9 is continuing the, the trumpet judgments that we've seen in chapter 8. In chapter 8 so far, we have seen the first four trumpets. And then there's this angel that says, whoa, 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 for the next three about to blow, because it's really going to get bad, right? Well, one more piece of information before we begin. I want you to understand how the sacrifices took place in the temple. We've touched on this before, but again, it plays into this. And that is, when a priest every morning was to go and make the morning offering, the priest would get up in the morning, they go get ready, they get dressed, they go into the altar of incense first. And at the altar of incense, they make sure the incense is going before they then come back out to the area where the bronze altar was, where they were then going to make a burnt offering. As soon as they make that burnt offering, they blow the trumpets. We talked about this a few weeks ago as far as the rooster crow. When Peter denied Jesus before the rooster crowed, that that wasn't an animal rooster. That was the blowing of the trumpet. We talked about roosters were not even allowed in Jerusalem. It's, all, it's written in the Talmud. It's in the Jewish laws. There were no roosters in Jerusalem. But it was called the rooster crow that they blew that trumpet three times in the morning. And it was called that. And so, the priest goes in, incense, comes out, really then it was a blowing of the trumpet because the sacrifice is being made. All right? That's kind of how it would go. Well, once that trumpet blew, the people oftentimes, at least if they were following the Lord, would rejoice and give God glory because the sacrifice was being offered. And the whole city knew that this was happening. You recall what we saw at the beginning of chapter 8. We saw an altar of incense. And silence. There was silence in heaven for a period of about a half hour. There's silence in the morning before judgment of this, which was a picture of the altar. We picture the altar. Jesus, oh, nice and loving. No, that was the wrath of God being satisfied. Judgment of God being placed on the sins of the world. 
So this altar is a picture of judgment. So you see the altar of incense, silence, and then chapter 9, trumpets blow. And then judgment. All these trumpets are going off. The same pattern of what was going on in the temple is the, what we've seen so far in the book of Revelation here. So, judgment is going to be taking place outside this city. Now, in chapter 9, remember, we're already, it seems, there at Mount Zion, under the hoopah. The people outside are now about to experience the wrath of God. So, when a Jew heard the rooster crow, they would know judgment or, you know, the, the altar of sacrifice there was taking place, the morning sacrifice. Um, trumpets would not only remind them of the sacrifice, it would remind them of going to war, it would remind them of Jericho, uh, the Jubilees, all of those. And all of those are very fitting for what we're seeing here. Basically, victory. Now, the other thing is we have already seen that the land, sea, fresh water, and sky have all been affected in the first four trumpets. Now, these are the woes that are taking place. We need to, before we even get into Revelation 9-1, there's so much background here, we need to look at Joel. And so go to Joel chapter 2, because we're going to look at this whole chapter and you're going to see similarities from beginning to end. I think that this is the exact same event that we're reading in, in Revelation 9. And maybe even a little bit in chapter 8, 8 and 9. Now in Joel, the background is this. After what we're about to read here in Joel, the Assyrians are going to come and destroy them. Take them and scatter them around. A picture of the Armageddon battle. So keep that in mind. That at what you read there in Joel, after that the Assyrians come and a picture of the Armageddon battle. Now, those that followed the Lord, however, do you know what happened when the Assyrians came? Those that followed the Lord, they jumped ship and they went to, guess where? Jerusalem. You know where Jerusalem is? Mount Zion. Hmm. And they were spared. God protected Jerusalem from the Assyrians. Remember the Assyrians came and surrounded the city? And Hezekiah is there and he's all worried and he prays to God. So he wakes up in the morning and 185,000 Assyrians are dead the next morning. Sound like an Armageddon battle? What's supposed to happen in Revelation? You're going to see... That in Revelation, we're at Mount Zion, there's a hoopah, and then all after this, there's going to be all the nations from the east come. They gather around the city to fight, and then God goes out and fights against them. It's an Armageddon battle. A picture of exactly what happens here with the Assyrians. This is the same picture that we're seeing. So Joel 2 is very important to understand this. Now we're going to see some locusts. Now, I want to show you here, my brother just sent me this video yesterday from Montana. Now, this is even worse than when I was growing up. When I was growing up in Montana, there was a plague of locusts for seven years. And I never mowed the lawn. 
I, maybe one time, but that was just to get some a few weeds that came up. But it's, they stripped the, the trees of every leaf. You could set your car down on the highway and there would be a hundred grasshoppers under your car at any given spot for hundreds of miles. Okay, that's how bad it was. Look at this. These are grasshoppers just at my brother's house here yesterday. You're going to see that big pile there. That's just nothing but grasshoppers about to take off there. It's kind of lagging here. Okay. In hours, just a few hours, his garden looked like this. Okay. Yeah, it looks like hail went through, except there's just nothing on the ground there behind it. Okay. There's a reason that these locusts are viewed here, but... I want you to understand this. When we're talking locusts here in Joel 2 and in Revelation 9, that's not what we're talking about. They are as locusts. These are going to be demons. Demonic hordes that are going to come. But these grasshoppers, I remember when I was a kid, they got into everything. And I'll tell you, even riding a four-wheeler was not fun. It was painful to ride a four-wheeler. Because, I mean, they'd be hitting your face and it hurt. They would get into everything. They just wiped out everything. Well, let's read Joel 2. Now, I'm going to go through this somewhat fast, but um, I think it's important for you to see it because it is. It's Revelation. Blow the trumpet in Zion. That's what we're doing in, Re in Revelation 9. We're reading all these trumpets, right? Sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Where are we right now? In Revelation 9, it seems that on the holy mountain in Zion. We saw that in chapter 7. For the day of the Lord is coming. Yep, it's, we're, we're about to see the coming of the Lord, aren't we, in Revelation. For it is at hand, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like the morning clouds spread over the mountains, a people come great and strong, the like of whom has never been nor will there ever be any such after them. This is going to be unique. What we're going to read in Revelation 9, oh, it's unique, all right. Even for many successive generations, a fire devours before them. Now, that's interesting because the first four seals and the first four trumpets all have fire involved with them. So before them, I think, maybe have two meanings. Not only in front of them, but... Before these locusts come, there's going to be fire. It says, and behind them, and fire devours them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, and behind them desolate wilderness. Just like at my brother's house yesterday. Surely nothing shall escape them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses. Now, if you've ever looked very closely to a locust, it does kind of have a horse-like look, but they're not regular locusts here. But we'll see what it keeps going here. It says this. The reason I want you to see that is because Revelation is going to say the exact same thing. There are locusts that are here that are demons but have an appearance of horses. Like swift steeds, so they run. With a noise like chariots over mountaintops, they leap like the noise of a flaming fire that devours the stubble like a strong people set in battle array. 
Before them, the people writhe in pain. Do you recall, I, we just saw in the trumpets, people are angry, and you're going to see that. They're going to be angry at God because there's some painful things that are happening. Um, but even more so, when these locusts come that you're going to read here in Revelation chapter 9, people are going to want to die. And it's going to go on for five months, and they can't die. Death will elude them. It's like those people who try to commit suicide, and they can't. They survive anyway. It, we'll talk about it when we get to that more, but I just need to point it out here. Before them, the people writhe in pain. All faces are drained of color. They run like mighty men. They climb the wall like men of war. Everyone marches in formation, and they do not break ranks. So they're terrifying. They do not push one another. Everyone marches in his own column. Though they lunge between the weapons, they are not cut down. They run to and fro in the city. Now, this running to and fro, does that kind of ring a bell, to and fro? That's how the devil is referred to, right? He goes to and fro. Even in Job, when the devil goes before God, he says, where have you been? He says, I've been going to and fro on the face of the earth. In Revelation... You're going to see these locusts are demons. I think there's a reason to and fro is used here. Because this is demonic. They run on the wall. They climb into the houses. They enter at the windows like a thief. Huh. Like a thief. Isn't that interesting? Because that's exactly what the Bible says. You know, if you knew when the thief was going to come, kind of thing. <coughs> the earth quakes before them. Well, that too is also interesting because the sixth trumpet, you're going to see uh, the sun and moon are going to grow dark, so keep that in mind. The fourth trumpet is where we saw a third of the heavens being affected. Uh, the end of the seals, we saw the whole earth being shaken. So the heavens tremble, the sun and moon grow dark, the stars diminish in brightness. The Lord gives voice before his army, a shout. The, the shout of the Lord, and the Lord is the one that gives voice to this army. It's like the Lord calls this army out. You're going to see in Revelation 9 that it is God who is going to give them permission to come. You'll see that coming up. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can endure it? Now therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your hearts, with fasting, weeping, and with mourning. So rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. <coughs> so now he's saying, repent. Because if you repent, maybe this won't happen to you. If you jump ahead into Revelation 9, verse 20, you will see that even after all these judgments of the locusts and others, and still they will not repent, it says. So after all of this stuff that's very much trumpet-like, he has a call to repentance, but they won't repent. It goes on. Who knows if he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Those who do repent, where are they? Mount Zion. What are they doing there? Leaving, collecting a blessing. Blow the trumpet in Zion, exactly where they're at. 
Consecrate a fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and nursing babies. Let the bridegroom, here's a wedding picture again, go out from his chamber and the bride from her dressing room. So what's about to happen? They're not, the wedding hasn't happened yet. It's go, come on out. The trumpet has blown. So now the bridegroom is coming. So the bride comes out of her chamber, waiting to be the flying off, right? Let the priests who minister to the Lord weep between the porch and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, O Lord, and do not give your heritage to reproach that the nation should rule over them. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? Then the Lord will be zealous for his land and pity his people. The Lord will answer and say to his people, Behold, I will send you grain and new wine and oil, and you will be satisfied by them. I will no longer make you a reproach among the nations. But I will remove far from you the northern army and will drive him away into a barren and desolate land with his face toward the eastern sea and his back toward the western sea. His stench will come up. And his foul odor will rise because he has done monstrous things. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done marvelous things. Do not be afraid, you beasts of the field, for the open pastures are springing up, and the tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and the vine yield their strength. So that's interesting. He's basically saying, Behold, Zion, I'm going to make you new. I'm going to be taking care of you. You're going to be a blessing. It's almost like Jerusalem is going to be a plenteous, blessed land. But in the meantime, there's this other army coming up against them, but they don't have any success. As a matter of fact, it's the Lord that's going to push them back into this desolate wasteland. Doesn't that sound like an Armageddon battle too? That you're going to see here in Revelation? Yeah, those that are blessed... Hey, beautiful. Those who are not coming up against them, just like Hezekiah, you got nothing to worry about because in the middle of the night, 185,000 of you guys are going to be dead. The Lord will go out and fight against him. Okay? We know that this is a battle. People dying, their stench is going to rise up. The land of Israel, though, is refreshed. And it says, be glad then, you children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the former rain faithfully. He will cause the rain to come down for you, the former rain and the latter rain in the first month. The threshing floors shall be full of wheat. The vats shall overflow with new wine and oil. They're being blessed. So I will restore you to the years that the swarming locust has eaten. So after these locusts come, this is what, that, that's when this happens. The crawling locusts, consuming locusts, the chewing locusts, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never be put to shame. Then you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. Where is God? He is among them. He is the hoopah. I am the Lord your God and there is no other. My people shall never be put to shame. You're protected. The land is refreshed, the locusts are destroyed, and God is among you. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions, and also on my men servants and on my maid servants I will pour out my spirit in those days. 
and I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon into blood, before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the remnant whom the Lord calls. Remember, Scripture prophetically, it's not one and done, it's many prophecies. We know at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, this in part was fulfilled. We know right now the Spirit has been outpoured on us. We have the Holy Spirit left as a deposit guaranteeing until our groom comes to get us. But we also know that in the end times there is going to be an outpouring of the Spirit in an even greater measure than what we see right now. And that's what we see here. But notice it said that he's going to show wonders in the heavens and the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. You're going to see that in these trumpets as well. So clearly we are reading the book of Revelation here in Joel 2. And I just want you to see this because as we go through it, you're going to be able to start putting these pieces together more and more. Chapters 15 and 16 of Revelation, you're going to see the Song of Moses where basically there is victory and deliverance, that the people are rejoicing. We've been delivered. Well, that's what's happening here. Okay, no, it says, before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. At this point, it's wonderful for those people in Zion. This isn't the coming in the dreadful day of the Lord for the outsiders. This is for us that he's talking about. Jerusalem is delivered. All right, so let's get to our one verse. <laughs> then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth. To him was given the keys to the bottomless pit. This is the first woe of the three woes that are coming. This is not an ordinary star material. This is demonic. This is... Remember Satan. Look what it says in Luke 10. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. So here we see a star fallen from heaven who's given a key. Is this Satan himself? Possibly. Why would he still be in heaven? That's what we're going to talk about here in just a second. Notice, had fallen, first of all. A star that had fallen. You don't, in the King James, see it as clearly, but it's there. But in the Greek... It's clearly past tense. Okay? So a fifth angel sounded and there was a star that had in the past fallen. When this happens, it is already a fallen star. Now, you're going to again see uh, an angel who is going to have a key to the abyss in chapter 20, verse 1. However, there, it's going to be a good angel. This one is not a good angel. Remember, 
everything God does, you see Satan has an antithesis of it. Jesus rises from the dead, Satan appears to rise from the dead. We'll see that in chapter 16 through 18, where we see one who had looked like he had a mortal wound and, you know, rises up. I mean, literally everything. Jesus is called the morning star, Satan is called the morning star. Jesus is a trinity, Satan is a trinity. I mean, everything is matched. Well, the fact that he is given this key shows that he's not the one in charge of it. He's given this power. What these guys are going to do is he's going to release this terrible, these locusts that we're going to read about in the following verses that we won't get to tonight. Just setting you up for next week. But um, remember that they are going to bring destruction on the ungodly. So in essence, what's happening is God is giving them permission to go bring destruction. Look at Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 15, speaking of the devil. How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth. You who once laid low the nations, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I'll sit enthroned on the mount of assembly on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to the grave, to the depths of the pit. It goes on and it says, all who see you, they stare at you. They ponder your fate. They say, is this the man who once laid low the nations? Who, who made the world a desert? Who, who took you know, cities captive and would not let them go free or go home? This is important because if I read this, it seems like Satan has already fallen from heaven. How you have fallen from heaven, O bright morning star. This is before Jesus, though. We've talked about this a long time ago when we went through Galatians. But we need to remind you of this again because this is a new concept. I grew up thinking Satan fell long, you know, you know somewhere after the sixth day of creation or seventh day of creation and then Adam and Eve. Somewhere in there he fell. I don't believe that anymore. I believe he fell when Jesus came. What did we just read in Luke? The disciples come and say, yeah, I saw Satan fall. Now you, you could say, well, yeah, that was because Jesus is remembering, you know, eons ago when he saw that. But that's not what we're going to see here in Scripture. All right? Um, what I want you to see here is as it goes on, it says, but... You are brought down to the grave to the depths of the pit. All who see you stare at you. They ponder your fate. He's being cast into the abyss at this point. This is also prophetic of future. Jesus is speaking of a future event. Because we're also going to see that they rise up to meet him. Well, why are these people rising up to meet the devil? It isn't because they want to see their king and they're cheering him on. It's because they are ticked off and they want a piece of him. You're the reason we're here. You're the one that deceived us. You're the one that lied. And so this is what we see 
here. So it's prophetic of future. Now, with that in mind, let's go back, and I'm going to have to jump ahead in Revelation 12. This is so hard teaching Revelation because you need these pieces that all come together. But when we get to Revelation 12, we'll talk about other things in more depth, but for now I want to focus on Satan and his fall in Revelation 12. Revelation 12.1, Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun. This woman, just to save time for you guys, this is Israel. Not just Mary, it's Israel. With the moon under her feet and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. That is Jesus and you. Israel gives birth to Jesus. That's what Romans says, right? Theirs are the patriarchs. Theirs are the covenants. Theirs the divine glory. And from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ. I could give you many verses. Jesus came from Israel, right? Even the whole genealogy. But you, the church, have been birthed from Israel as well. Okay? Now, being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. Another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon, Satan, having seven heads and ten horns. We see that in Daniel. You'll see it in Revelation. And seven diadems on his head. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. More demons. A third of the angels followed him. Then the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth, before Jesus, or before Israel, okay, to devour her child Jesus as soon as it was born. So we enter uh, Herod as a type of Christ or a type of Antichrist. She bore a male child who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, again Jesus. Her child, Jesus, was caught up to God in his throne. He goes to heaven, right? We know basically the New Testament story there. All right, verse 6 in chapter 12 of Revelation. Then the woman, Israel, fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God that she should feed there 1,260 days and war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought. Now, where are they at? In heaven or on earth? War broke out in heaven. And where is this battle going on? In heaven. Wait a minute. Satan has not been cast down to earth yet. Satan has access to go to and from heaven or earth. How do we know? Job. Remember the book of Job? God calls Satan up. We can even see uh, the, the king um, when Jehoshaphat and Ahab. Remember Ahab, they're about to go to war, and he says, is there, Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat says, is there any good prophet among you? Well, there's one, but he never has anything good to say about me. You know, Don't say such a thing. So they bring him in, and this prophet, Micaiah, I think it is, he says, I saw in heaven and all these, there were demons, basically, that said, I'll be a lying spirit. I'll go down and be a lying spirit. I'll do it. You see, 
At this time in the Old Testament, even when Jesus was born, there seems to be Satan has not been cast down yet. I know that just flies in the face of everything we've been taught. But it's what scripture says. I'll prove it. Verse 8 says this, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. Now, keep the context of what we've been talking about. The woman has been born. The woman gives birth to a child. That child is down here. Satan goes after him. He goes up to heaven. So we're at Jesus being born and going back to heaven. And there's a war in heaven at that time after Jesus ascends. Right? And then, this war, there's no place for them. So, he is cast out. It says, They did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out. That serpent of old, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world, he was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Now, if this is all I had in the book of Revelation, I wouldn't make a doctrine out of this, because Revelation, I mean, it's hard to understand, and so we've got to be careful not to just, you know, hey, well, boom, there it is. But we're going to show you some other verses in the New Testament that are going to back this up, that fall right in line. Now is when the dragon is cast out after Jesus is born, after he has been taken to his throne, and after millions of angels are cast out, that they go with him. Verse 10, Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our Lord and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. The accuser. He would always go, I always pictured it this way, he'd come up to heaven and he'd say, Hey, did you see what Brian did down there? Did you, have you been watching Brian? Have you seen that? He calls himself a, you know, one of yours, a child of God. He says he's a Christian. Did you see what he just did? That's Brian. Your guy? And God says, shut up, you accuser. He's mine. He belongs to me. Sometimes he acts that way, but he's mine. Okay? So, they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. So, the timing of this is important. Verse 12, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Why? Because Satan has been cast out forever. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth, though, and the sea, for the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, because he knows he's not going to be able to ascend to the tops of the clouds. He's not going to be able to sit on that throne. He is cast out. He is ticked off. He knows that he has a short time. So, rejoice in heaven, but woe to you, earth. 1 John 5.19 I didn't put it up here, but I'll read it to you. We know that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Hmm. 1 John, in the New Testament. That's when he says, the whole world is under the control or sway of the evil one. We often talk about God's in control. God, yes, he is, but he hasn't taken dominion back yet. When Adam fell, all dominion went to the devil. And now, 
Dominion belongs to the devil. That is why he could say to Jesus, look at all these kingdoms, I'll give them to you. He had the authority to do so. But Jesus is saying, no, no, no. I'm going to take the authority rightfully, righteously, justly. And that will happen, we will see in Revelation 11, when it says, when the seventh trumpet will blow, now the kingdom of this world has, now the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our God, and the time to reward his saints has come. So not until Revelation 11 will control be taken away from the devil completely. So, jumping to verse 17 here in Revelation 12, the dragon was enraged with the woman after he's been cast out, after Jesus has ascended, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring. Who's her? Israel. Who's the rest of her offspring? Not Jesus, us, the church. So the devil is going after the church. When? Right after Jesus ascended to heaven. What did Jesus warn? There will be false prophets, wolves that are going to come in sheep's clothing and they're going to sneak in among you. Watch out for them. Beware. Even today's sermon, if you guys listen to, to uh, Corner Fringe, exactly that. You see in the first century, the devil went after it and he went to destroy the Sabbath like that. And you see people like Ignatius absolutely taking scripture 100% out of context to try and say that the Sabbath was Sunday. Go, go watch today's sermon. I don't have time to get into it, but it is this exactly. We are at war, and a third of the angels are following and warring after you. That's how serious this is. Our adversary is after us. He knows our weak areas, and he doesn't want to just kill you or to give you a bad day. He wants to destroy your soul for an eternity. Satan is much more than just giving you a bad day, screwing up your life for a little bit. He wants to destroy you. He is faster, he is wiser, he is quicker, he is smarter, he's more experienced than all of us put together. And we need wisdom, Jesus, to fight this battle. But the point is, is that these fallen angels have come down. But notice these are two separate events. Fallen angels and Satan and a third of the angels were cast out of heaven. We saw way back in Genesis 6 some fallen angels that were bound in the abyss. We're going to see those, I think, those, some of those specific angels being released next week. This is why the dragon gets this. Oh, okay. <laughs> We're going to see it in Revelation. So, those angels that came down had sexual relations with women. They were bound and tied with chains, bound in darkness for a certain appointed time. I think that's going to be part of these things that we'll see. Then you also have a third of the angels being cast down. That is at the time of Christ. Seems to be two separate events, okay? So kind of keep that in mind too. Um, 
Job 1.6, I just kind of brought it up, but just to show you, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Sons of God here, B'nai Elohim, these are angels. Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? He said, from going to and fro on the earth, from walking back and forth on it. So I'm not saying that Satan was only in heaven before. He had access to go up and down, probably only when called, I don't know. Again, I don't know the rules of heaven. All I know is that scripture said that he was in heaven afterwards. Then he was down on earth, and then we see demons in heaven, and then they're down on earth. There's a back and forth, but until Jesus comes, when Jesus came, there was a change in the spiritual realm. Remember the demons legion? Why have you come to torture us before the appointed time? They know there's a time. There are some spiritual rules that we are not privy to. But some of that is going here. John gives us some more insight into the exact same thing I've been saying to back it up outside of Revelation. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Therefore, the people who stood by and heard it say that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. This is Jesus praying. And it goes on in verse 30. Jesus answered and said, this voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world. Who's that? The prince of this world now stands condemned, John says, right? Well, the whole world is under the control of the evil one. He has dominion. He is the ruler of this world. He says he will be cast out now. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Jesus is about to go to the cross, and he's saying, now Satan is going to be cast out of heaven forever. Jesus, when he died on the cross, folks, it wasn't just to forgive you. There was some spiritual stuff going on. Satan was about to be cast out of heaven forever. Yeah, it, it, it's a different way of thinking, but it's, it's what Scripture is saying. John 14, 30, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He's warning before he ascends, and he has nothing in me. But that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandments, so I do. Arise, let us go from here. So the generation of Jesus is when he warns us that, that the, the devil is coming. That's the answer of when he was cast down, just like what we see in Revelation chapter 12. Exactly. So, closing out here, um, to show you, we, again, we talked about this before, but in Genesis, kind of a, a midrashic understanding of Scripture. Again, these patterns that we see in the Old Testament. Genesis 8, 6, Noah and the ark. So it came to pass at the end of 40 days that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made. It's a strange detail to be recorded in Scripture. Everything has a spiritual reason that it's there. The ark was a picture of heaven. The door, a picture of Jesus. You don't get to heaven unless you go through Jesus. Well, in verse 7, Then he sent out a raven which kept going to and fro. That word, to and fro again. A raven, birds in Scripture, always used as evil, pretty much, outside of the dove. Okay? Always. I don't have time to go through to support all of that. But here, 
This is a picture of the devil. This devil is let out. He goes to and fro until the waters had dried up on the earth. He also sent out from himself a dove to see if the waters had receded from the face. Ravens, unclean, just like Satan is. They're going to and fro. So a dove is a picture of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was sent out. There's no place for him to rest. So he comes back to heaven, to the ark. Right? But the dove found no resting place for the sole of whose foot? Her foot. Just like we talked about that wisdom thing before. Interesting that the Bible would record that. She returned into the ark to him, for the waters were on the face of the whole earth. So he put, on his, put out his hand and took her and drew her into the ark to himself. So, basically, the first time the spirit goes out, it can't remain. It needs to come back, back to the Father. He waited another seven days, sent out the dove from the ark. Then the dove came to in the evening. Behold, a freshly plucked olive leaf was in her mouth. Olive leaf is always a picture of what? Israel. I don't know if this is right or wrong again, but just a weird, perhaps midrashic understanding. Yeah, I'm not even going to get into that tonight because I'm out of time. But the raven and the dove were sent out, but the dove returns after the fall. Dominion was Satan. Spirit couldn't rest. Could not rest. Seven days later, the dove is sent out and returns with the olive leaf. Israel. God calls Abraham to Israel. He goes out, but he has to come. So he comes and goes. That's what it was like in the Old Testament. The Spirit never resided. Jesus comes. The Spirit then resides. It remains. It remains on earth. Not in heaven, but on earth. When Satan is cast down. So when Jesus comes back and he takes Israel, he conceals us until the wrath has passed. We looked at that verse before. Heaven, that new Jerusalem in a sense, comes down to heaven there and there will never be any division again. When that spirit comes forever to dwell in heaven. I'll leave it at that. So here is what I'm going to uh, leave you with. Revelation 1.18, to kind of go back to our one verse that we've covered tonight, that we've had so much side stuff to look at. I am the living one. I was dead. Behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. So who gave this angel or this star the key to the abyss in, in verse 1 there of chapter 9? Jesus himself. He holds the power. He has dominion, and he's only giving it to this fallen star in chapter 9, verse 1, to go and allow punishment to come out. So, this is the last slide. I want you to, this abyss, that the key is to open up. There are three things, or four things that I want you to look at here. Number one, not all demons are there. This is a special place for only a certain number of Angels, fallen angels. Remember, legion roamed freely. They begged him, do not send us into the abyss. So it was already there at that time, but they're begging, don't send us in there. 
Send us into the pigs instead. So the demons know about it. And it's basically a place to keep these certain fallen angels. In Jude chapter 1 verse 6, referring to Genesis 6-4 and those angels that married women or you know, had offspring by them, it says, The angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their own home, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting change for what? Judgment on the great day. Not just their judgment, but to bring judgment, I think, as you're going to see next week in verse 2 and following. We already saw in Revelation 1, Jesus is the one that controls this abyss. He has the keys to it. So, perhaps where Jesus proclaimed his victory over death, when we see that he descended into hell in the creed, Jesus, he descended into hell and on the third, third day rose again from the dead, we get that from one verse in Scripture, and it's right here in 1 Peter 3. Perhaps it is this very place, I don't know, where he actually went down to the lower parts of Sheol and proclaimed his victory. I don't know. It could just be Sheol, and this is a completely separate place. I tend to think this is a completely separate place, this abyss. But maybe that's where Christ went and proclaimed his victory as well. So... With that in mind, that prepares you for chapter 9. A lot of stuff to look at there, but we covered one verse as I promised. So we'll close in prayer.